Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here remotely with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris. Uh, I'm a comedian, a filmmaker, Lord of the Bunker. Yeah, we're all we're all bunkered up here, uh, so we, we we may sound a little different um, from our our last episode. We wrapped up our season on the films of 1989 before all the uh, turmoil in the world kind of came about. And initially, if you heard our epilogue episode, we were planning to do our fourth season about the films of 1977. Uh, but for various logistical reasons uh, that we don't need to get into related to what's going on, we're switching gears and we're talking about the films of 1996 in this season, starting with the box office champion, Independence Day. And that's right. We're nimble. We're spry. We can pivot. You know, if it's not one year, it's another. And honestly, 96, along with 94, if you recall, Josh, were probably the first two years I had mentioned when we were... Uh, just kind of brainstorming this podcast. I think this is one of the most awesome movie years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about a few different years in the 90s. And of course, this is a time when you and I were really getting into film. Uh, we were both teenagers. And I think this is like a, a formative period for us as film fans. So certainly we have a lot of attachment to the movies that came out during this period. And, and there's a lot of great movies. Um, so I think it'll be fun to take a look at 96 and we will get back to 1977. We have a whole lineup for that, that we're going to get to in the future, but we've got even more awesome stuff coming in 1996, starting with Independence Day, which is certainly a movie that is very into its own awesomeness. I think we could say. I think it's uh, one of the most influential movies of 1996 for certain. It is. It's one of the most influential movies of the 90s, probably. And it was, of course, the top movie at the box office in 1996, both worldwide and in North America. It uh, grossed $817.4 million worldwide on a budget of just $75 million. So, I mean, it was a big production, but I think it wasn't as big a production at the time as maybe some other, like, franchisee movies of 1996, but it just became this massive phenomenon uh, as they built up sort of the the advertising campaign and the uh, anticipation of this movie turned it into a huge thing before it even came out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, at the time, it was the second highest grossing film of all time behind Jurassic Park. And yes. this is one of the essential films to do advertising tie-ins. I think it might have been the first to really capitalize on the Super Bowl ads. So yeah, this was, um, you know, if we look back at the iconography of blockbusters going from like Jaws in 75 and Star Wars in 77. And, you know, we talked about 84 um, with Ghostbusters and everything that was going on. Then this 96 is, uh, this, this definitely uh, has carved itself out as one of the major years. And this is the major blockbuster of that year. In 89, we talked about Batman and everything, but I think this is that next step forward in the revolution. Yeah, it is. I mean, and and Jurassic Park, which was two years earlier, another huge landmark in, in kind of the evolution of the blockbuster. And this did build on that. Um, and like you said, it was the second highest grossing movie of all time 
at the time behind Jurassic right. Park. Currently, three years earlier. Uh, oh, three years earlier. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And uh, currently it is the number 72 highest grossing movie of all time, but which is actually not that bad considering it's really inflation that makes a difference in, in those charts. So to hold there um, is actually not a, not a bad uh, yeah. position to be in. You wonder where it would, I mean, I didn't, uh, as, as our listeners know, math, not our favorite. So <laughs> true. I'm sure it'd be much higher if we took into account the inflation and everything. Right. I know there's there's charts on that, and I, I didn't look that up either. But um, I, so I think by any measure, a massive, massive success. Uh, it was also nominated for two Oscars. It won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects, which I think is well-deserved. That's one of the things that watching this movie now, I thought held up really, really well. Uh, it was also nominated for Best uh, Sound Mixing, although it didn't win uh, for that. But yeah, it's just a, a pop culture phenomenon and very, very big with audiences and and did all right with critics, actually. It got kind of mixed reviews, but a lot of positives. Um, it did also get, it got an A from CinemaScore, the audience polling service. So certainly this is a movie that audiences went crazy for. And they won so, a Grammy for the score. Oh, there you go. Yeah, the score is, well, maybe we'll talk about it a little more in our general uh, uh, section, but the score is certainly... It's certainly something. You can tell that they are going for something with it. Um, yeah, and they and they hit what they are going for. You they know? do. They do. They do indeed. That's true. Um, so I just wanted to add uh, 3,000 plus special effects. So when we're talking about that visual effects, when this by far had the most special effects of any movie of its kind or ever, I think. And also um, one of the things I really liked was that they did a lot of in-camera and on-set effects as opposed to CGI effects. And I think a lot of those still, like you were saying, they still hold up and are fun to watch. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons, actually, that the effects hold up is because there's minimal CGI and the practical effects that they use in this movie are maybe stand the test of time better. Um, so yeah, critic-wise, it, uh, well, it got two thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert. They were not into it. Uh, and uh, Roger Ebert said, for all of its huge budget, Independence Day is a timid movie when it comes to imagination. The aliens, when we finally see them, are a serious disappointment. Couldn't they think of anything more interesting than octopus men? If an alien species ever does visit Earth, I for one hope they have something interesting to share with us. Or if they must kill us, I hope they do it with something we haven't seen before. Instead of with cornball ray beams that look designed by the same artists who painted the covers of Amazing Stories magazine in the 1940s. And uh, it, on, on, on the air, Siskel and Ebert both really criticized what they saw as the uh, unoriginality of this movie, which, I mean, I think it's very, this is, I mean, it's, it's your basic alien invasion thing. I don't think it's particularly original. I think there's a lot in the execution that is solid, but certainly this isn't a revolutionary movie in terms of its plot. Well, the originality I think is, you know, when you look at the origin of it and Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin were on tour for Stargate and someone asked them if they think aliens, uh, exist, Emmerich, said uh, it was kind of just riffing and he, you know, was saying it would be interesting if they did a large scale invasion on the U.S. And most alien movies, the aliens come, they're in cornfields, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, kind of in the background. But here, you know, they're taking over every single city, which we do see a lot after this movie. Yeah, but I think even before this movie, like there's plenty of, I mean, obviously this, this owes a huge, huge debt to War of War the World. War of the World, sure. 
Yeah. And I mean, and that's exactly what War of the Worlds is. If you watch the, I mean, going back to the novel, but if you watch like the 1950s movie version of it, it's very similar. Um, well, so I, I, let me ask you a question, both of you, Josh and Dave, if aliens do come, do you want them to murder us all or enslave us all? I mean, neither. Can I say neither? <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad answer, Josh. I'd prefer murder though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I had to choose, I'd probably take murder as well. Um, we can be, this is like a, it's like the lunchtime poll in Heather's. If the, the aliens are about to come and you've just won $5 million, what are you going to do, uh, before they, they destroy the earth? So boom, uh, call back to season three. There you go. But aside from e, uh, Siskel and Ebert, uh, a lot of critics did enjoy this, or at least enjoyed it on its own terms. Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly said, this rootin' tootin' blockbuster is adorable. It's as happily techno-horny as any chapter of the Star Wars trilogy, as satisfyingly hokey and full of designated colorful characters as any of the great 1970s human face of disaster epics. The four airport sagas, the towering inferno, etc., on which director Roland Emmerich and producer Dean Devlin, the 1994 Stargate team, who also wrote the screenplay, drew for inspiration. Independence Day is as corny as Kansas, high as the flag on the 4th of July. And if you'll excuse the expression I'll use, it's intrinsically American fun. So she's kind of giving it a backhanded compliment, but I mean, I think that's what it's going for. It's, I mean, you know, obviously we know. It came out on July 2nd, leading into July 3rd and July 4th. And that's when the time period of this movie takes place. And it was just a perfect popcorn blockbuster of the time. And definitely rah-rah American. Uh, you could see that um, they could screen this at the White House whenever they wanted, I think. And they did. I think actually this was this was shown to President Bill Clinton like a couple days before it was right. released. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I think that the other point that she makes there that as much as they're influenced by like War of the Worlds, disaster movies, and and given what Roland Emmerich went on to do, clearly that was a huge influence on him. And stuff like she mentions, Airport and Towering Inferno, or like the Poseidon Adventure with the sort of motley crew of different kind of characters who were thrown together in this disaster, very much I think a huge influence on this movie. And the strength of this movie, like I. I like most, if not all of these characters. So when we're going back and forth and bipping and bopping between the different stories, I'm with it the whole way. Lots of bipping and bopping in this movie. It's a rootin' tootin', you know, American yes, good time. It is. Uh, so finally, uh, The Hollywood Reporter was mostly into the uh, sort of craft acts uh, or technical aspects of it. Uh, Dwayne Berge in The Hollywood Reporter said, imaginatively splicing genres together, sci-fi, disaster, war, as well as cloning winning ingredients from more recent films from the Lucas, Spielberg, and Cameron files, screenwriters Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin do not exactly lift us off into any new story dimensions, but rather they have created a sci-fi story constellation of the brightest star elements. With German director Emmerich at the helm, Independence Day soars as filmic ubercraft. And, and I think that's also uh, something that even when I was groaning at the plot, like the way this movie is put together on a technical level is, is really impressive. I haven't seen many Roland Emmerich movies since, but I think this was probably the height of his craft. Yeah, I sadly have seen quite a few Roland Emmerich <laughs> movies since, and uh, you are 100% correct in that assessment. So, uh, 
Did you have any other? Uh, well, I guess we should we should first say, uh, did you see this in 1996? Did I see it in 1996? Only four times in the movie theaters that summer. Holy shit! Really? Oh man, this was right when I moved to Las Vegas as a teenager. And I believe I saw it with probably when my friends from New Jersey visited me out here. And then when I went back to New Jersey for the rest of the summer, I saw it with my friends out there. I really loved this movie when it came out. Wow. That is unexpected to me, actually. Uh, I guess, did, did you and I see this movie together? Because I don't remember. I'm sure I did see it in a theater, but I don't have any specific memories of it. I, I remember only the fourth time I saw it with uh, my adolescent crush, Lauren Petroselli. Oh, Lauren Petroselli. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure has been brought up on this podcast. I don't think so. I don't think no? so. No, I don't no? think maybe, so. Dave? Maybe one of your other, your other crushes from the past. I, yeah. It's so hard I, to keep track. You know, I grew up in North Jersey and all these Italian <laughs> names can get confusing <laughs> from time to time. So. Yes. Yes. All the, all the stars of Sundance winner, true love were your, uh, were your crushes. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, I again I I'm pretty sure I saw this in theaters. I certainly had seen it well, you know, around the original time it was out. The last time I had watched it, I watched it in 2016 uh when the sequel came out in prep uh to write about that movie and then of course watched it again this time, but I I I'm not sure between 96 and 2016 how many times I had seen it, but it's one of those movies that just is always around. You know, it was on TV or it was just somebody who had it on at their house or something. I feel like this is a movie that was just permeated the culture for years and years and years. And I imagine I probably watched it in college, but couldn't tell you the last time I watched it before prepping for the show. Dave, what are your um, what are your recollections? Did you see this in the theater and have you watched it since? So I did watch it in preparation for this, and I definitely Woo! saw it o opening weekend. Uh, I don't remember how many times I saw it in the theater, uh, but I will tell you, and I've shared this story before, uh, I, I forget, maybe on my podcast, I'm not sure, but it was my all-time favorite theater experience, the opening weekend of this movie. I think I agree with you. It was wow. so much fun, and I... This could never happen nowadays, but uh, first of all, movies don't even really sell out anymore. Uh, but the entire theater was completely oversold and they allowed people to bring folding chairs into the theater so they could fill up the aisles and everything. And it was just all these cheering people. And I was, I guess, 16 at the time. And I mean, it was just the most fun experience ever. It was awesome. It was a real event. Yeah. Wow. Really yeah. You, you guys have such fond memories of this movie and I have none. <laughs> that sounds right. That sounds right yeah. for you, Josh. So, yeah. And I think uh, I wanted to I wanted to make sure that we all kind of went on record with what we thought about it originally before we get to the next segment and talk about how we thought about it on the on the rewatch in anticipation mm -hmm. for this podcast. But um, Josh, just a few more things. I mean, just as a pop cultural phenomenon, you know. Kids' Choice Award, Favorite Movie, People's Choice Award, Favorite Dramatic Motion Picture, MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss, Will Smith and Vivica Fox, Blockbuster Award, Will Smith, the vaunted Czech Lion Award for Most Successful Movie in Cinema. So, <laughs> and uh, and one other, um, one other piece of uh, review that I liked was the BBC review where Bill Pullman is giving his rah-rah speech to go fight the aliens and 
they called it the most jaw-droppingly pompous soliloquy ever delivered in a mainstream <laughs> Hollywood movie. I yeah, you know, they're not wrong about that. But um yeah, I, I honestly again, I remember that I saw it. I must have seen it. I have no recollection of whether I liked it or not at the time. It just it's a movie that like made no impression on me. It was like a piece of furniture. It's just there. Well, I uh, sometimes I'm very fond of certain pieces of furniture, chairs. Sure. I just mean it's like a it's like an accepted Couches. aspect of like the environment that you don't even a good notice chair anymore. Be a great thing. A good yeah. bed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, chaise lounge. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> I think we can stop with the furniture. But you loved it, obviously. Both of you guys loved it when you saw it. Yeah, and now that we know Josh indifferent towards it, Dave and I both loved it. Uh, let's come back and talk about how we felt about it this time around. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this first episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're talking about the biggest box office success of the year, Roland Emmerich's Independence Day, which I apparently am alone in being wholly indifferent to. So Jason, why do you love this movie? Well, Josh, I just want to say, you know, when we were getting ready for this season, I was like, you know, I know I, I knew I loved it back then, but then I looked and it's like two and a half hours and I'm like, man, this is going to be a trudge and it's going to be cheesy. And I rewatched it and I had so much fun rewatching this movie And it was so easy and so quick to get through. I loved it all over again, Josh. So yes, you're right. I do love it. Um, I think to me, this is the blockbuster of my adolescence. You know, Um, I love the characters. uh, First and foremost, Jeff Goldblum, who doesn't have a man crush on him. The ladies, because they just have crushes on him. Um, I think the dialogue's fun. I think the stories, uh, keep moving along. I think the alien invasion works and, uh, I think everything ratchets up the way it's supposed to. It's just a really fun movie. And, uh, my only disappointment was I didn't have a big tub of popcorn with me to watch it with. (laughs) Well, that, that is certainly disappointing. Yeah, it's fine. I guess I, when I watched it in 2016, uh, before the sequel came out, which the sequel is terrible. I was not really into it at all. I, I just, I think all I noticed was the cheesiness and the, especially the second half, the whole plot to defeat the aliens is so absurdly nonsensical that it's just, I feel like it's at a certain point, it's hard to buy into the stakes of the story because their plan is so idiotic that it doesn't even matter. You know, I mean, you know, it's going to work obviously with this kind of movie, they're going to defeat the aliens, but you want to have at least a little like suspense or a little, um, some some questioning of how is this going to go and can they pull it off and whatever. But what they come up with is so stupid that it's obviously going to work because there's no way that they're going to create some alternate suggestions. So I don't know. The The second half of the movie to me is much less interesting than the first half, which is just the, I mean, it's got the character introductions, but it doesn't waste time with like before the invasion. Like things start up really quickly. And I felt like the depiction of the chaos and uh, everybody running around and not knowing what to do. And while we establish characters sort of in the midst of that, I thought that was well done. Um, and so 
in in 2016, I definitely was like, this movie is dumb and I don't care about it. This time I liked it a little more. Maybe it's uh, sadly a little more appropriate for the way our world is right now. <laughs> and so I was a little more generous to it. I still don't think it's a, a great movie. It still feels long, especially in the climax to me. But it was it was fine. There's there's entertaining aspects of it. And again, for me, the the most striking thing watching it this time was how good the special effects are. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you a little. I mean, you know, the plan goes accordingly, but there are snafus along the way. You know, uh, Steve uh, Heller's and David's uh, ship, they get stuck in the mothership, you know. Uh, the weapons don't break the shield at first. The uh, the rocket, uh, the nuclear weapon gets jammed, the missile, you know? So there are little hiccups along the way. Um, Dave, what did you think this time? Uh, I got to say, I agree with you, Jason. I loved it. It was so much fun. Uh, there, there's, It's clearly a very corny movie, um, but it's going for a certain tone, I think. I, I, I feel it's weird watching, and I'm sure you'll get into it once we get into the legacy, but it's weird watching this creative team with their future movies, how, you know, they probably were going for the same thing, but absolutely don't get there in any way, shape or form. But in this one, it really is just nonstop fun, I think. And with that running time, which is crazy long, it, it never really felt long to me. And maybe that's part of the legacy is making all these blockbusters too long. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but Josh, you know, you had, you had mentioned War of the Worlds, right? And I was thinking right. of Spielberg's War of the Worlds, which this movie prevented. He basically put it off for a decade after this came out, you know? And right. I was thinking like, and I haven't seen it since the theater, but part of that reason is it wasn't that much fun. I think that could have used a little more of this tone, a little more fun, a little more chaos, a little more uh, levity. And, you know, we've seen some of that in with Tom Cruise in, in Mission Impossible Fallout and some of the other movies. I think this, as Dave said, we know it's corny, but it's not, as we talk about like the score and the speeches and everything, it's not hiding the fact that it's corny. That's part of its mm -hmm. charm. Right. No, that, that, that is. And I mean, there, there were a lot of times when I did find that charming. I mean, I think that speech is way over the top. Um, I, I think the charming aspects of it, again, were maybe more in the earlier parts of the movie where it's still corny and there's still one-liners. I mean, Will Smith is spouting off one, one-liners like from the moment he appears on screen in this movie. And, and that's fine. Like he's good at it. And, um, I enjoyed that up to a point. I think when it gets really bombastic. And when that score is just like pounding you over the head, I mean, that guy has listened to John Williams for like decades, I'm sure. And is just trying to, you know, really recreate every rousing score of the past, you know, 50 years or something. Um, it's it, to me, it, then it's too much like, yes, of course it knows it's corny. It's not pretending to be serious or sophisticated and that's okay. But I, I just feel like that tone didn't work for me when it gets more into the like, now we're going to defeat the aliens kind of thing. Um, the characters are all one dimensional and that's okay. I mean, this is another thing that Siskel and Ebert talked about a lot in their review about how they're just all kind of character types. But I feel like the actors, the better actors in this movie, I mean, Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum and even Bill Pullman, who are really the, the main three stars, they give you some uh, dimension to those characters that maybe isn't in the script. And so I can enjoy those performances, 
but I just, I never cared about what was happening. And there's just so many grown worthy things like, you know, Vivica Fox's dog escaping the, the explosion and things like that. Best that, scene that, in any movie ever. Yeah. We always want <laughs> the dog to live dude. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't care if the dog, I don't care if the dog lives or dies, but I just think that the way that that happens is just so excessively corny. I guess that's, that's the thing. Like, I think it's tough to make up to balance that if you're making this kind of film and you know, like, yes, it's corny, it's cheesy, it's over the top, but you have to just get the right amount of that. And, and I feel like there's a lot of stuff, Randy Quaid's whole character. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that to me just is on the wrong side of that balance. But at the same time, you know, everything that Goldblum does, pretty much everything that Will Smith does, even as the movie gets into the more ridiculous aspects. I mean, I can't forgive the computer virus finale. It is one of the dumbest sci-fi uh, finales in, in the history of cinema. Um, but the way that Goldblum sells it almost, almost works. So I'll give you that. I And I think I probably... Uh when watching it this time, thought it too. Will Smith, um, fun to watch, buffed up for this one, clearly. But um, yeah, I, I, it would have been nice if some of his lines were a little more in line with the scene and not just like, you know, quotes we can put in an advertisement, you know. Um, Goldblum, hilarious. And I think all of his comedy comes out of the acting, you know, so that's what made that so fun. I had read that basically he and Judd Hirsch and even Will Smith had free reign to improvise. And um, I thought that really worked. I love Harvey Firestein and everything. He's always fun <laughs> to watch. By the way, Dave, your hair, kind of like Harvey Firestein's. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. good. Even, even when we're just on a camera, we can comment on how Dave's hair looks. I mean, I think if you're going to say anything about characters being one dimensional it's the women the women have nothing to do their oh, background yeah. and i mean vivica, vivica fox, fox is hilarious she has a little <laughs> strength um the other women the first lady and goldblum's ex they're just kind of there um but um you know um some of the other supporting characters who doesn't love robert loggia come on man that great that guy's great in everything he is he is really good as the commanding military guy. Like he has the right kind of presence for it. Um, yeah, I mean they did a good job of casting this movie for the most part. I think in that these super ridiculous characters, they get actors who can mostly pull that off. Um, I do think you're you're right about the female characters. I mean, did they really need to make Vivica Fox a stripper? I mean, you have to wonder like these two dudes sitting there. She uh, did it for her kid. She did it for her kid, right? But it's just such an. She's not like, sorry. It's just such a it's just such a superfluous detail so that they can get a scene in a strip club to like tick the right boxes for this PG-13 movie so that they can appeal to that, you know, teenage boy demographic that they're going for. And um, it worked. And it worked. Well, no, obviously it worked. Everything about like we can I can criticize whatever I want, but like every every decision that they made in making this movie was clearly the right one in terms of success because it's not only was it a huge success, it continues to be extremely beloved. Funny story about Robert Loggia, since you were talking about disaster movies that I had read, was he asked Dean Devlin about like kind of what his character should be. And Dean Devlin meant to tell him to go back and watch Airport, one of the, you know, uh, 70s disaster movies of note. But instead he said Airplane. 
And <laughs> so Robert Loggia on the first day wouldn't come out of his trailer because um, he was really upset. And, you know, like uh, Devlin had to go in or Emmerich had to go in and they're like, what's wrong? And he's like, I didn't know I was signing up for a spoof film. <laughs> and it was all just because uh, Devlin said airplane instead of airport. So um, right. that rules. Yeah. But although Robert Loggia, very, you know, we do know he can pull off comedy based on his roles in the orange juice commercials. Okay, I don't remember those, but that's that's a good poll there. I will I will the Sopranos also. I I will say weirdly enough, honestly, you know, thinking back to to Airplane and like uh is it is it Robert Stack or uh Lloyd Bridges or or maybe both of them are who are in Airplane. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I feel I think like both. Yeah, but I feel like both of those guys were cast because of their sort of straight-faced performances in serious disaster movies and honestly their performances and and leslie nielsen too before he started yeah. doing all these spoofs was known for these very straight-faced you know kind of uh somber uh dramas like the way those spoof movies work is because those actors give those straight-faced performances so that the truth is that if robert loja was playing this character in a spoof he should have given the exact same performance and it would have worked uh it worked for me yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not criticized. Like he does exactly what he's supposed to do there. And I think even the women who are absolutely underwritten, I think Mar Margaret Collin is kind of an underrated actress and uh, she does a good job with what she's given, even though she has to just kind of trail behind Jeff Goldblum the whole time. Um, and, and Mary McDonald is the, the tragic first lady who just uh, spends half the movie dying very slowly. <laughs> I mean, she's a great actress and she, she gives everything that she has to that part even if it's a, a minimal part. And, uh, and of course, young, young Mae Whitman as Bill Pullman's daughter, one of her, I guess is probably one of her earliest roles before uh, she went on to Arrested Development. Her? That's all. Her, yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, Bill Pullman, it was fun to watch him. I haven't seen him do much recently, but I remember like, you know, he's so offbeat in, uh, in this. I, I, originally, this was written for Kevin Spacey. Did you know that? I didn't, but, but that's Bill Pullman is a way better choice. Well, it, he was supposed to be more of like an evil Nixon type. And, well, there uh, you go. Yeah. And, um, but they said that Kevin Spacey, they didn't think would have ever become a big enough star. I think the studio said that, which of <laughs> course, he became a much bigger star and then not so yeah. much anymore. Um, right. So but in the, Bill, in the overall arc of things, probably better to have Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman has that <laughs> weird machismo, but angst all wrapped up, uh, which he does rather well in a lot of mo movies. I always think back of the very underrated Jay Kasdan film, The Zero Effect. You remember that? Oh, movie? yeah. That's a really good movie. Yeah. And he's so strange and great in that movie. I, I highly recommend it. It was a lot of fun watching him and the speech where, <clears throat> again, not in the script today. We celebrate our Independence Day. You know, the last line of the speech. Uh, uh, he delivers with gusto. And that soundtrack by Dave Arnold, who is a Brit, not an American, and just uh, spent like four months tearing his hair out and just deciding, like, I'll just write the most patriotic, bombastic stuff I can write. It worked. And he, he succeeded at it. Yeah, sure it really did. did. Huh? Yeah. No, I think Bill Pullman is good in this role. And part of what works about it is because the character 
is meant to be sort of insecure. You know, he's a little young to be president and he has a low approval rating and he hasn't proved himself as a leader and he manages to step up. And I think that's a better character than if they had gone with the evil Nixon type, like if they were casting Kevin Spacey, because uh, you you want that that there there's a there's a little arc to that character and and they give you the the evil government figure sort of CIA with the, the James Rebhorn character yeah the CIA guy who's not even really evil he's just kind of like equivocating and then we don't have time for that um, but this is a movie that actually shows a shocking amount of government competence in the U.S. government like m- virtually every government official that we meet in this movie like does the right thing and is decisive and takes action. So I'll give you that. that. That's not realistic. The alien invasion is more realistic than that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're not worried about the economy when the uh, aliens are attacking. They don't. They don't. Uh, they don't pump any money into the into the stock market. You're not getting a stimulus <laughs> check after uh, cities burn down. Which I uh, mean, you're going to need it. Many of those were done on miniatures. This movie had twice as many miniature sets built as any other movie in history, and. Um, I had read the way they like burned out like Los Angeles and that those tunnel scenes was they put um like a camera uh, on like maybe a dolly or something that was hanging down vertically and they would light the um, flame from underneath the city so the so when the city exploded it exploded up towards the camera and the camera moved in towards the city and I thought that was really creative and again it really really still works. Um, and then of course the iconic, uh, the iconic white house blowing up shot, which is still one of the most well-known shots in cinema history. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you there a hundred percent. The special effects are really, really good. The use of miniatures is fantastic and, and it holds up. You can watch a lot of movies from this era that use more CGI or more sort of like cutting edge special effects and they look really bad now, but I feel like except for maybe one or two small moments, the special effects in this movie look fantastic still from this day. And it made me think about what a lost art like miniatures are in special effects. Like nobody uses those anymore, but they work so well in this movie. Yeah. I remember, I think like Be Kind Rewind by Michel Gondry might've been the last movie to really go in camera. And he does a lot of that stuff, but I agree. It would be fun. I think it'd be more fun if more movies did that nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of good explosions in this movie. I mean, and this movie is dedicated to explosions. Like the opening credits of this movie explode. You know, you can't <laughs> you can't say that they aren't giving you all the explosions that you could possibly want. I I want to just uh, you know, we talked about the cast and we had mentioned him, but everything Jeff Goldblum does is gold in general, but especially <laughs> in this film. Like you know, he had this and uh, and Jurassic Park within three years, so he was on quite a blockbuster run. But I think he elevates all of the material he's in in this time period. Yeah, absolutely. He's great. And, and, and like I said, there's a lot of the acting in this movie gives you more to the characters than clearly that was written. Yeah. And, and Goldblum is a big part of that. I do think Judd Hirsch is a little much he 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 felt like the the dave you know the character from children's hospital what is it rabbi jewy mcjuju yeah yeah. (laughs) um, they really they really went hard with the jewishness in uh in this movie in a in a way that almost 
became kind of a caricature. Well, so. no, it no, it did not. If you grew up where Dave and I grew up, that is not a caricature. All right, <laughs> that is uh, a lot of older. It's an Jews introduction for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Um, all right. But uh, but you know what was funny is like Judd Hirsch in '96 was playing like old Jewish dad. And he's still playing like exactly the same age, age old Jewish dad nowadays. So. That's true. Yeah. yeah, I mean he he comes back in the sequel playing that same character, and you know it's like no time has passed, uh, even though it's twenty <laughs> years later. It's I don't know what else to say. I did want to acknowledge, um, and I was trying to remember, Jason, if if you were with me when I I took this cross country trip and drove through uh, the the dual town of West Wendover, Nevada and Wendover, Utah, or if that was with someone else, I can't remember. We took the Southern route when we drove cross country. I think that was with your uh, buddy, John or something. Yeah, that might've been. But one of the times when I drove cross country uh, from to or from college on the East coast, drove through there and parts of this movie were shot in this, this funny, weird area where there are these two towns uh, on the border between Utah and Nevada. And there's this like just giant painted line in the middle of the street that divides the two states. And this, it's this weird, like balance between two time zones and states and gambling being legal or illegal. And none of that is in the movie. It was just a place where there's kind of a lot of open desert and they shot some stuff from the movie. But I I did appreciate the presence of, of West Wendover and Wendover and, and want to acknowledge. Well, you mentioned you didn't like Randy Quaid, but we needed that, um, whole sequence of characters, you know, as kind of this other world that we wouldn't have had, you know, the, the common man in the West, uh, who's, who's living out there off the, off whatever land they're living off of. And I, I mean, we see that all the time now in movies again, but, um, I don't know. I think, I think without that story, without those characters, we lose a lot. I, I don't. I don't think that. I mean, obviously, he becomes instrumental in the finale. And I think the idea of the like average guy who steps up and becomes like the key person to defeating the aliens is not a bad idea. I mean, first of all, you basically have that with Jeff Goldblum's character. He's just a guy who works at a satellite company who figures stuff out and becomes the hero. So that arc is kind of already there. But I think you could have the function of that Randy Quaid character without making him this dumb hick stereotype about getting kidnapped by aliens. And just, it's like, it's like cousin Eddie was transported into this yes, movie. He's playing cousin Eddie. I agree with you, but I don't agree that he and Goldblum are the same. Goldblum is a character who's clearly very smart and hasn't lived up to his potential. Whereas Randy Quaid is a character who nobody thinks has any potential and dies heroically saving the day and his children from the aliens. Yeah, and I just think you could approach that in a less cartoonish way, and it still would have uh, accomplished the same function of giving that sort of every man his hero moment. So I can say I liked it. I, I do say, I don't know if you looked up what the original ending was, which was essentially the same thing where Randy Quaid sacrifices himself to save the day. But the idea was going to be that he had been rejected as a, as a military pilot. And instead he straps the nuclear bomb to his biplane and flies it up into the spaceship. And, and that would have just been way too much. So I'm glad they decided not to do that. Yeah. They said that, um, that 
there's no way they could have accounted for the speed difference between fighter yeah. jets and the biplane. But also I'm wondering, well, how would he have stolen a nuclear missile? That's the other thing I'm wondering. I don't know. I mean, the whole idea of it is just so absurd that I can't imagine they would have gone through with it. And I'm glad that they didn't. It's it's absurd enough as it is, but to add that element would just have been way too much. I think, I think all those military scenes, you know, where we see like the fighter jets approaching the the alien craft and you know the way that their um nuclear weapons are setting up on the ground in uh houston for visual confirmation and even the um i guess the control rooms for these operations i thought all of that really really looked so much better than we see in so many movies to this day yeah no i agree i think the production values of this movie are really strong and they made great use of, again, a budget that was probably not necessarily as big as some other blockbuster budgets yeah. at the time. Um, I I have no complaints about the technical aspects of this movie. I think it's fantastic on that level. My issues are with the story and the characters, but I was able to go along with it, like I said, uh, more so this time than last time. One other so. note I want to say, not just the budget, the shooting schedule, 72 days. Imagine if a blockbuster like this shot in 72 days today, I think they would have like a 20 minute movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 72 days still sounds like quite a long time, but it's true. They, they do. And you know, blockbusters now they'll do months long shoots and then they do like, you know, another month of reshoots and all of that. And this movie really, other than that slightly altered ending, sounds like it came through exactly the way they envisioned it from the beginning. And as you had mentioned, you know, we're in New York, we're in Washington, we're in the West, you know, we're shooting all over the place. Um, so yeah, a, an effective film. I think we've, uh, we've hit the note. Should we give it a, a rating, Josh, out of uh, five uh, blown up White Houses? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, what is your uh, what is your thought on how many blown up White Houses do you give? This? I'm still giving this four blown up White Houses. And I agree with Dave, like, I know in um, 2016, they had done a re-release in the theaters. And then in England, they had done it with a live symphony, which would I would love to see that. Um, I would totally go see this again in the movie theater on a re-release. So four blown up White Houses for me. I'm going to give it three blown up White Houses, which I feel like is generous. I, I looked when I watched it last time, I looked on Letterboxd, <laughs> I gave it two and a half. I think I was in the right mood, maybe not for great reasons, but I think I was in the right mood for this. So three, and that's pretty much all for the technical aspects of Th it. Three for you is a big, I think is higher I'm than impressed. we all expected. Dave, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. what do you say, Dave? Uh, I was going to go with four, but I'm going to give it a four and a half. Yeah. Of the dog scene. Wow. So, <laughs> that All dog right. scene is just the best thing ever. Oh so. my God. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll come back and talk about the legacy of independence day. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this season premiere of our season on the films of 1996. We've been talking about the biggest movie at the box office, Independence Day. And as we we talked a little bit about, I think the number one legacy of this movie is just the way it shaped kind of blockbuster filmmaking and marketing and just the way blockbusters are presented. I agree with you. We had uh, 69.26 million tickets sold in the U.S. alone. 
22 million units sold on home video, which was the best ever for a live action film. And uh, of course, in Lebanon, they made him cut out scenes where Jews were talking about uh, being Jewish. So that's an important aspect <laughs> of the legacy there. But, um, you know, uh, one other important aspect is the uptick in uh, sales for uh, dolphin jewelry because of Vivica A. Fox's uh, dolphin earrings. But I agree with Ridiculous. you. I agree with you, Josh. This, as we, as I stated towards the beginning, crank things out to what Batman and Jurassic Park had laid down as the modern blockbuster marketing and took it to the next level. And the other legacy point and uh, was, which was stated often at the time is this film is often credited as um, restarting the sci-fi boom. Right. Yeah. There were a lot more big, like large scale sci-fi action movies that came after this and, and Roland Emmerich himself, in 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 collaboration with Dean Devlin, and then they had the, like a falling out at some point um, and stopped working together. But he kept on with these big movies. I mean, they did the their very ill fated Godzilla remake right after this, uh, which I've actually never seen. Um, yeah, yes, you did. We saw it in the theater together with Matthew no, Broderick, right? Yeah, yeah, with Matthew Broderick. I have not. I don't believe I saw that with you. They, that would have been someone else. I'm yeah. pretty sure I never saw that. It's not good. I believe that it's not good. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I've seen quite a few later films. I mean, 2012 and the day after tomorrow and 10,000 BC. And just last year, uh, Roland Emmerich directed Midway, which is in, in interestingly that movie, which is a historical movie and relies all on real things that occurred and, and real things that existed is full of just the worst CGI you can imagine. And so it's the, <laughs> the opposite of what they do here. And I've seen none of those, but um, Day After Tomorrow, are we saying that's probably the best of the bunch? Yeah, I remember thinking Day After Tomorrow was okay at the time. It's definitely better than any of the other ones that I mentioned. What about Independence Day? Do you think it's better than Independence Day? No. I mean, I'd have to watch it again, but I'm going to say no. I don't think so. Tell us a little (laughs) about the sequel. I didn't see the sequel to this film. Yeah, it's, it's so no bad. it's it's no good. I mean, Independence Day Resurgence, which came out in 2016. It does have well, Will Smith decided not to be in it, so they're just like, uh, he died. Um, <laughs> how how did he die? I don't even remember. Uh, but I it don't was remember just, either. I think they were pissed at him for not doing it, so they just were like, oh yeah, he crashed his plane or something. Yeah. I mean, it was ridiculous. He was he was talking about to like 2011. They were negotiating it and. This was supposed to be two sequels, not just one, but they condensed it. And does the rest of the cast come back? Do we see Goldblum? Yeah, Goldblum is back. I think he had the biggest part of the returning people. Judd Hirsch, as I mentioned, is also back. Uh, Bill Pullman comes back. Uh, Brent Spiner as the weird scientist guy with the long hair. He comes back. How, how does and, he come back? He's dead. Well, he's been in a coma since the original. Yeah. I think is what the deal was. <laughs> um, There's some really wacky ideas in the sequel. And so, some of it seemed like it could be fun in that same kind of like knowingly winking at the camera way. But it's just not good. I know no. uh, a lot of people like Brent Spiner in this original one. I did not. I thought he was out of place. But I know he was basing his performance on like a real person, like the production designer or something like that on a, on the Roland Emmerich crew. Yeah, I mm. thought Brent Spiner was fun. I mean, I think you want to have that kind of weird scientist. And I like the idea of him where he's so into the science of it that he's like really excited about what's happening, even though like billions of people are dying. He's like, cool, yeah. aliens. I kind of <laughs> like that. Um, 
But yeah, that, that sequel is bad. And the thing about that sequel is that all of those people come back, but none of them are the main character. What they do mm-hmm. is they make the main character. It's like Liam Hemsworth is a pilot. And then I think it's Jesse Usher who plays like the grown-up version of Vivica Fox's kid. And then Micah Monroe who plays the grown-up version of Bill Pullman's kid. And so they try to make it this sort of like next generation thing that really doesn't work because you're like, we don't care about any of these characters. And also I thought it was kind of sad. I like Micah Monroe. She's a good actress. But I thought it was it was indicative of what they were doing that Mae Whitman, still working, still an actress, but they're like, nah, we can't have her back. We need a hot young blonde instead. And so that's <laughs> <laughs> not not Anne Hogg? Come on, man. Yeah, no, no, not. So I can't recommend that movie. And also, that movie ends with like no resolution because they obviously planned to make a sequel and it never happened because the movie bombed. It so, didn't bomb. It it made it, almost it 400 million. But for yeah. that kind of thing, it wasn't enough. And, you know, so you, you, you slog through that whole movie and then you get to the end and you're like, oh, okay. So the story just keeps going. So I think it's like, they're going to go attack the aliens on their planet or something like that. Do you, do you remember Dave, what the ending was? That sounds right. Yeah. They, it was all about, uh, getting, getting alien technology so they could fight back or something like that. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't see it. And I no. will leave my <laughs> memories here with the 1996 ID4. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I think we should also mention as legacy, like Will Smith got to the next level from being mm-hmm. in this movie. I mean, became like one of the biggest movie stars in the world in large part because of this movie. Oh, I would I would disagree. Not next level, like seven levels up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, you know, and he maintained that position for quite a while. I mean, you could even argue he still maintains it. I mean, it's been a little rocky for him lately, but I mean, he's he's like an iconic movie star and, and this is really where that started. Right. And, uh, instead of shooting the sequel to this in 2011, he did after earth. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) after earth is very bad. Although is after earth worse than independence day resurgence? Would this, I'm going to say yes, but (laughs) at least, at least after, after earth, like, because it's, 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 M. Night Shyamalan and it's also like Will Smith's and, and his son's weird ideas like it's bad in a like what the hell are they doing kind of way whereas the Independence Day sequel is bad more in a just like boring blockbuster way but it would have been a different movie and maybe um, for the better probably if if it was based around Stephen Heller Will Smith character yeah yeah certainly that would have improved it I did want to briefly also say uh, Mary McDonald you know we mentioned as the first lady who kind of gets stuck with nothing to do and then uh, quite a few years later, she went on to play the president on Battlestar Galactica on sci-fi. And she was great as the like decisive leader, basically like the Bill Pullman character on that show. And so uh, I think that's, she's an underrated actor and she's, she's great on Battlestar Galactica. In Empire Magazine in 2003, the Bill Pullman speech was named the cheesiest movie moment of all time. And I can believe that. I can believe that. Um, I mean, I guess that's another thing, too, related to speeches and, and one-liners. There's a lot of memes this movie uh, has ended up generating. I think, welcome to Earth, the Will Smith line is really, you know, has got to be on a lot of uh, images and, and GIFs across the internet. And perhaps that's why Entertainment Weekly in 2010 named it the best summer, second best summer movie of all time. I'm out of stuff. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. Um, I, I, I think we've covered the legacy 
uh, Dave uh, had dug up the important mockbuster Independence Disaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from I think from 2014 or something like that. Um, I feel like we should uh, have a watch party uh, in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group. All of us watch it. That I would. Be, I would be down for that. I, I was almost <laughs> like I was. I, I was trying to. Uh, I thought maybe I would try to watch it if I had the time and I didn't get to it, but um, I. It's probably at least as bad as Independence Day Resurgence. <laughs> but uh, Josh, one other thing is like you had mentioned um, checking the boxes. This was definitely a four quadrant movie where kids could go see it on their own. They could go see it with their parents. You could go out on a date to see this movie. Older people would go, um, you know, maybe with families or maybe by themselves. Like it hit every single, every single box on uh, every single demographic. So uh, a lot of blockbusters, like they don't do that, but this one really did. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like I said before, they, Emmerich and Devlin, like they knew exactly what they were doing and they hit on the perfect way to succeed with this movie, regardless of what I or any other critic thought of it. So I, I have to give them credit for that and, uh, good for them. So that's, that's all. I think that's the end. That is Independence Day. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. And uh, if you're stuck at home, follow us on social media. You got to do that because uh, we're, we're bringing the heat. I'm on Facebook at Jason Harris Comedy. I'm on Instagram at Jason Harris Comedy. I'm on Twitter at J Harris Comedy. We're on all the, and I'm, uh, of course, my beautiful website, goforjason.com, under construction. Um, and then we are always on the web at awesomemovieyear.com. And awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram. Still not going so well there. Awesome movie yeah, pod on Twitter. Instagram going. I am at Signal Bleed on Twitter at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Josh Bell Hates Everything.com. And you can listen to Still Going in a sort of innovative, I think Dave, our producer David Rosen, has, has done some uh, interesting shifting there with his podcast, <laughs> Piecing It Together. Yeah, we're, uh, we're we're doing a new side series called Missing Pieces, where we look at movies that came out before uh, the start of piecing it together. And uh, we're having a lot of fun talking about all kinds of crazy movies that my guests are digging up. So uh, come listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Josh, have you been on it since the rebrand, I guess? <laughs> uh, no, I have not. But I, I am always up for appearing on Piecing It Together, as I think we both are. Yeah, and I haven't been on it either. Yeah, let's make that happen, guys. Let's, let's do it. Let's do that. <laughs> and in the meantime, though, you can tune in for our next episode. What will that be, Jason? Josh, this is a, this is a big one for me, Josh. We're doing the first-time filmmaker. And uh, if it's 1996, you got to go with Wes Anderson and Bottle Rocket, baby. So tune in next time for Bottle Rocket. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west. 